Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. She should have been home by now. Sarah Finn's daughter, Geraldine Ann Finn, was 23 years old, an adult woman with her own life, but she always came back when she said she would. Geraldine always called her mother, sometimes twice a night, even if she was working or going out. But it was getting later and later, and Geraldine hadn't called, and she still wasn't home. You've heard pieces of Geraldine Ann Finn's story on Dark Down East before. Her case seemed undoubtedly linked to an over three decades old cold case that I covered on the show in January of this year. Well, it was a cold case. And it turns out my hunch about the connection was right. In May 2021, Maine State Police announced they'd made an arrest in the 1987 murder of Janet Brochu. And the man they charged with her killing was already serving time for the murder of Geraldine Ann Finn. Two women from central Maine, both in their 20s, both lives stolen, with all signs pointing back to the very same suspect. It's time to tell Geraldine Ann Finn's whole story. Plus, in a special interview with Lieutenant Jeffrey Love, commanding officer of the Maine State Police Major Crimes Unit, you'll hear an update on the case of Janet Brochu. And I ask him why it took 34 years to arrest Gerald Goodale for her murder. I'm Kylie Lowe, and this is Dark Down East. Geraldine Finn came from a big, big family. She was one of 11 kids. Her parents, William and Sarah, along with several of the Finn children, moved to Skowhegan, Maine from Massachusetts in 1987. They settled into Maine life on the quiet dead end St. James Street. Skowhegan is a small Somerset County town, not quite Western Maine, not quite Eastern Maine, but smack dab in the middle of the central Maine region I grew up in. The land was first inhabited by the indigenous Abenaki people, who gave the area its name, meaning watching place for fish. The Skowhegan Falls on the Kennebec River, before they were replaced by the Weston Dam, provided an abundance of salmon and other fish caught with spears in the pooling water underneath the falls. When I think of small town inland Maine, the image in my brain looks a lot like Skowhegan, because Skowhegan was a lot like my small inland Maine hometown. There's a Main Street strip with brick buildings whose facades haven't changed much since the day they were built, save for some contemporary signage. Modest neighborhoods lined with stick-built homes 
their garage doors left wide open for a quick run to the Hannaford, and a river winding through the center of it all, once a key element to the logging industry that supported the local economy, now a favorite for whitewater rafting enthusiasts. When folks from away think of Maine, they might assume rocky shoreline and crashing waves make up the quintessential Maine scene, that the beauty of my home state is credited only to those ocean scenes illuminated by lighthouse beacons. But Maine's beauty, a different kind of beauty, stretches inland too. It's a beauty that represents what real Maine life is like, beyond tourist season and lobster rolls, in our smaller, quieter communities, in our safe little towns where families like the Finns felt safe and at home. Geraldine Finn was 23 years old in 1988, and she worked as a certified nurse assistant at the Woodlawn Nursing Home in Skowhegan. She worked really hard at her job and felt a great passion for helping people. She was religious, never missed church, and had a close relationship with her mom, dad, and siblings. If you lived and worked in a small town like Skowhegan, you probably spent time in Waterville or Augusta, two bigger cities around 30 to 45 minutes away. The definition of a close drive is different in inland Maine. On a Tuesday night in Portland, driving more than a mile to grab drinks after work might be out of the question. But in Skowhegan, and for Geraldine, driving to Waterville after work at the nursing home to decompress from a long day wasn't too far at all. On August 9, 1988, Geraldine and her friends Janet Levesque and Ruth Small all sidled up to the bar at Pete and Larry's Lounge inside the Holiday Inn, just off Upper Main Street in Waterville. Geraldine wasn't drinking, but she was happy to be out with work friends, spending time together outside of their shifts. Around 8.15 p.m., Geraldine noticed a blue Chevy Blazer circling the parking lot. The driver stopped just within her line of sight, and when he noticed she was looking at him, the man started beckoning Geraldine and her friends to come outside. Maybe his hollering and waving was distracting. Maybe they thought he needed help. Or maybe they just wanted to see what the guy wanted so he'd leave them to enjoy their evening. Whatever it was, the three women approached the window of his car, getting a better look at the guy as they got closer. He had a thick, dark mustache and dark hair that fell into his dark eyes. He had a diamond-shaped tattoo on his shoulder. They could see it because he was sitting shirtless in his truck. But he wasn't just shirtless. To their shock, the man was sitting there in the driver's seat of his car, completely nude. Before they could really make sense of what they'd just encountered, the man asked Geraldine, Janet, and Ruth if they wanted to go skinny dipping with him. They quickly turned down his invite and turned on their heels to head back to their seats inside the bar. His invite denied, the man sped out of the parking lot. If that had been the only interaction with the naked man, you might assume that he accomplished what he set out to do that night however disturbing and wrong it might have been. 
He probably got some degree of satisfaction from his unsolicited display of nudity. If he peeled out of the parking lot never to be seen again, you could maybe conclude that exposing himself to women who did not ask for it and victimizing them for his own amusement was his primary perverted objective. But it wasn't their only interaction with the man that night. The dark depths of his goal that night had not yet been realized, and so the dark-haired, mustached man showed up at Pete and Larry's again, this time wearing clothes, and he made a beeline for Geraldine and her friends. He introduced himself as John, and they let him take a seat at their table. I wouldn't be surprised if you're sitting there with your brow furrowed at the thought of the three women welcoming the once-nude stranger into their group for the night. It's easy to question why they didn't feel enough stranger danger to turn him away once more when he returned to Pete and Larry's. But we don't know the full scope of their interactions, or his demeanor, or if and how they were able to just laugh it off. And even if we did know, we cannot place a single ounce of blame on the women for their choices that night. As the night rolled on, Geraldine got more comfortable with this man she knew as John. They chatted and danced together, and when it came time to wrap up the night sometime after 9.30 p.m., Geraldine climbed into the passenger seat of the Chevy Blazer and waved off her friends, saying John was going to give her a ride home. Back to her house on St. James Street in Skowhegan, a 30-minute ride from Pete and Larry's in Waterville. But the driver, whose real name was Gerald Goodale, had other plans. John Rooney was working his overnight shift at the Big Apple convenience store in Skowhegan in the early morning hours of August 10th, 1988. He was keeping an eye on the gas pumps for any late-night fill-ups while he refilled the cups at the soda machine. It was 3 a.m. when a man stepped into the harsh fluorescent light and up to a payphone, his quarters clinking into the collection pan. It was dead quiet at that hour, and he was the only person at the store. It wasn't difficult to hear the conversation, if only one side of it. Apparently, this man at the phone got his truck stuck on a stump in the woods and needed help getting it out. John thought, by the sounds of it, the man was talking to a family member, probably his brother. The man hung up the phone and waited until another customer pulled up to the store. They got talking about his truck stuck on a stump, and the good Samaritan offered to help pull the truck out with a come-along. The man shook the helpful stranger's hand to accept his friendly, late-night offer and introduced himself. His name was Gerald. The pair hopped in the stranger's car, and Gerald directed him out of the parking lot towards the woods near the Breezy Acres Motel. Although a generous offer, the pair was ultimately unsuccessful getting Gerald's truck unstuck. Meanwhile, John Goodale, Gerald's brother, had been driving around the area trying to remember where he said he got stuck, but he gave up after an hour. John Goodale 
never saw his brother Gerald that night. It had been several hours since Gerald left Pete and Larry's with Geraldine in his truck. Neither the attendant at the Big Apple nor the Good Samaritan who tried to pull the truck from the stump ever saw a woman with Gerald that night. Maybe that's because he brought her home like he said he would. Maybe he dropped Geraldine off to her family and then decided to cut through some skitter trails in the woods with his 4x4. But that wasn't the case, because the next morning, Geraldine still wasn't home. Sarah and William Finn reported their daughter missing, and the search for Geraldine began almost immediately. Meanwhile, Gerald called his brother John for another favor, an alibi, for the early morning hours of August 10th. On Sunday, August 14th, 1988, A man named Michael Keyes was out surveying his property along Route 201, just outside of Skowhegan, making plans to cut a logging road. It had rained a lot recently. The ground was soggy as he traipsed through his fields and into the wooded area along the edge of his land. It was humid. The black flies were relentless. It was everything you'd expect from a mid-August main day, except for the moment he found a body. There, laying in a shallow grave, partially obscured by pine needles and brush, was the body of a young woman. Michael Keyes tested his eyes again to be sure of what he was seeing before making his way back to the same path he traveled through the woods and over the soggy field to report what he'd discovered to the sheriff's office. State police assisted the initial crime scene investigation, but that recent heavy rainfall in the area made it challenging to collect and survey evidence. State police spokesman Steve McCausland told the Bangor Daily News, quote, we are treating this as simply a discovered body right now, unquote. Investigators were tight-lipped about the circumstances and the cause of death, at least at first. Because 48 hours later, everything was revealed. The body was that of 23-year-old Geraldine Ann Finn. She died by strangulation, and her killer dumped her body in the woods right near the Breezy Acres Motel, just three miles away from her home. The search for Geraldine began quickly, given how out of character it was for her to not return home. And with the discovery of her body, the investigation into her death was just as swift. Police already knew exactly where to look for their prime suspect, because they'd had him under intense surveillance since the night he left with Geraldine in his car. On Monday, August 15, 1988, Gerald Goodale was arrested without incident for the strangulation murder of Geraldine Ann Finn. Gerald Goodale was a factory and construction worker at the time, picking up various jobs, building homes, and working on apartment renovations in the greater Waterville area. 
The news of his arrest for murder came as a shock to those who knew him. A family friend of Gerald told the Bangor Daily News, quote, He was very helpful. If I needed anything done, I'd ask him and he'd be right there to help, unquote. Gerald's parents were quick to come to his defense in the press, too. His father, James Goodale, told the Bangor Daily News, quote, Nothing adds up. It's not in his character. It's a different person, unquote. They even said he had an alibi, that he was home waiting for a phone call until 9.15 that night, and then he left to go mud-running or four-wheeling, they said. That was the same story Gerald told from the beginning, too. He had to say something to explain away the evidence investigators found in the woods. According to reporting by Bruce Hertz in the Bangor Daily News, the tire tracks matched the tires on Gerald's blazer. Cigarette butts strewn about the scene were the same brand Gerald smoked. He didn't deny he was in the woods near the Breezy Acres Motel. Gerald explained he was out four-wheeling, mud-running, tearing it up. He got stuck. He asked for help. Witnesses could attest to that part of the story. But Gerald's further explanation and his defense would have to wait for trial. The state requested that Gerald be held without bail, presenting evidence and probable cause for the judge to consider. Gerald's brother and sister-in-law testified that he asked them for an alibi, which they denied to give him. Witnesses testified that it was Gerald's blazer that Geraldine climbed into the last night she was seen alive. Other witnesses testified that Gerald Goodale had been questioned in another murder investigation earlier that spring, the still-unsolved murder of Janet Brochu. Assistant Attorney General Michael Westcott addressed the judge, quote, There is no doubt this is a homicide. It is not self-defense, manslaughter, or involuntary death. This is not close to those. The risk is so great, the temptation is so great that he will flee. Bail should be denied. Unquote. The judge ultimately denied Gerald Goodale's bail, saying that murder, quote, is a substantial crime with substantial risk. Unquote. Gerald Goodale's jury-waived trial began in May of 1989. In a surprise move, the defense requested that the charge be reduced from murder to manslaughter. According to reporting by the Bangor Daily News, defense counsel James E. Mitchell told the court, quote, This is not a whodunit. The state has its man. Unquote. It was essentially an admission of his client's involvement in Geraldine's death, but he argued that it was not intentional. In the version of events the defense presented, Gerald and Geraldine were out in the woods when he got the truck stuck on a stump. That part we know to have an ounce of truth in it. The evidence supports that detail. But, the defense claimed, the first attempt to free it was with Geraldine's help. According to their story, Goodale asked Geraldine to put her foot on the gas as he got out of the truck to push it off the stump. But when she did this, the truck started to smoke and spark, and that made Goodale angry. He came at Geraldine in the driver's seat, 
and defending herself, she started hitting him. She was scared. Then, they claimed, Goodale put his arm around her neck in an attempt to quiet her down after she got mad and came out of the truck at him in a violent manner. Quote, in the process of doing that, he accidentally killed her. Unquote. Again, this is all their version of events. Geraldine couldn't speak for herself about what really happened that night. And it would turn out that Gerald Goodale wouldn't even take the stand to defend his own version of events either. Justice Donald G. Alexander wasn't having it. Quote, the charge is murder, and the court is not prepared to consider a lesser charge. Unquote. The state presented witnesses that negated the defense's story. It wasn't an accident. They argued that instead, Gerald stalked and pursued Geraldine, returning to the bar that night to seek her out from the women he'd exposed himself to earlier in the evening. Further, the state argued that she'd been strangled with her own purse strap, which challenged the defense's story. Evidence supported the purse strap as the ultimate murder weapon, as did testimony by the state's chief forensic expert, Dr. Roy. Evidence also supported that Geraldine had been sexually assaulted. Gerald Goodale's defense didn't call a single witness, and Gerald did not testify in his own defense. At the conclusion of the trial, the judge found Gerald Goodale guilty. At his sentencing for the murder of Geraldine Finn, Gerald Goodale was handed a 75-year sentence, with at least 30 years before good time could be earned toward release. Gerald cried as he addressed the judge, saying, quote, I am truly sorry. This was no murder. It was an accident. I can't ask for forgiveness because I cannot forgive myself. I have not been able to sleep without tranquilizers. There is nothing I can do to replace her. Unquote. In the years following his conviction and sentencing, Gerald Goodale's defense team filed multiple appeals. Court documents from 1990 detail the grounds of his first appeal. He contended that the Superior Court erred by one, failing to consider his guilty plea to the lesser charge of negligent manslaughter. 2. Concluding that the defendant killed intentionally. 3. Denying defendant's motion for a new trial. and 4. Imposing a de facto life sentence. There's two pieces of this appeal that I want to focus on. That first part, that the court failed to consider his guilty plea to the lesser charge of manslaughter. That's interesting. Goodale's attorney argued that the court had a duty to review and consider the lesser charge rather than flat out dismiss it right then and there. But there was no precedent for this. Quote, Defendant cites no supporting authority for his unusual request, and our research reveals none. We conclude that the Superior Court did not err in declining to consider the offer to plead to an uncharged offense. Unquote. Secondly, Goodale argued that the Superior Court erred in concluding that he killed Geraldine intentionally. He challenged the evidence, 
claiming it wasn't sufficient to prove that he did it on purpose. The court's decision read, quote, Defendant argues that because the presiding justice was uncertain whether the victim was strangled by a chokehold or by a purse drop as the state contended, the evidence is insufficient to establish intent. Moreover, defendant moved for a new trial on the grounds that the court had convicted on the alternative factual theory of death by chokehold, and fairness required a new trial in order to permit the defense to present evidence concerning that alternative. Neither argument has any merit. Uncertainty as to the precise method of strangulation does not diminish or negate the sufficiency of the evidence supporting the finding that the killing was intentional. Defendant did not present any newly discovered evidence and takes nothing from his motion for a new trial." Unquote. Ultimately, finding no error, the Supreme Judicial Court of Maine affirmed Gerald's conviction and sentence, shooting down his 1990 appeal. In 1999, 10 years after his conviction, Gerald Goodale filed a petition for writ of habeas corpus. This is different from an appeal. It's a move considered to be an extraordinary remedy when a defendant has no other option to challenge the legality of their imprisonment. Gerald Goodale's writ of habeas corpus attacked the state on the grounds of ineffective assistance of counsel. Goodale argued that he was coerced to waive his right to a jury trial that his attorney again coerced him to waive his right to testify in his own defense, that his attorney threatened to expose him as a liar on the stand and therefore scared him out of testifying. Included in the court documents are transcripts of a conversation between Gerald Goodale and his defense counsel, James E. Mitchell, and those transcripts were used to demonstrate the alleged coercion and manipulation by the attorney on his client. For half a second, I considered the possibility that it was all true, that Gerald never got a fair trial, that his attorney failed to give him the best representation and pursue an appropriate outcome for a death that could have been truly accidental, and that that charge should have been involuntary manslaughter. For half a second, I considered it. Because in the other half of that second, I snapped back to the reality of it all. Gerald Goodale wanted everyone to believe that Geraldine's death was a horrible accident. But does the same accident, with the same M.O., within the same six-month period, happen twice? On Friday, May 14, 2021, as he sat in Maine State Prison, where he'd been for 32 years serving his sentence for the murder of Geraldine Finn, Gerald Goodale was charged for the 1987 murder of Janet Brochu. After Gerald Goodale's arrest for Geraldine Finn's murder in 1988, Maine State Police eyed him as a likely suspect for the Christmas Eve killing of 20-year-old Janet Brochu just eight months earlier. The similarities in their cases were undeniable. Both women got into the car of a man they'd met that same night at Waterville Bars, just three miles apart from each other. The women even looked alike, with short dark hair and round faces with bright smiles. 
Plus, Gerald seemed to hint to police after his arrest for Geraldine's murder that he had information about another case. Fernand La Rochelle told the Bangor Daily News that Goodale dangled this information about another major crime in front of investigators, but he wasn't fully cooperating. Not only were the circumstances the same, not only was Gerald teasing law enforcement that he had details about another murder and doing it loud enough so even the media was reporting the assumed connection, Gerald Goodale's mother Juanita told the Bangor Daily News in an August 22, 1988 article that Gerald admitted he saw Janet Brochu on the night she disappeared in the parking lot of T. Willie's bar in Waterville. Despite all of this, Goodale was not publicly named a suspect or even a person of interest in the case. Deputy Attorney General Fernand La Rochelle told the Bangor Daily News, quote, We're keeping an open mind on both matters. We'll go wherever the information leads us. Unquote. When I heard the news that Gerald Goodale had finally been charged for the murder of Janet Brochu, nearly 34 long years later, I was stunned. I felt hopeful, encouraged, happy even, but I also still felt some deep-seated frustration. What took so long? If it was so obvious, obvious enough for the media to report on it, obvious enough for me to release an entire podcast episode about Janet Brochu's case and Gerald Goodale's connection to it, what took so long? I decided to call Lieutenant Jeffrey Love, commanding officer of the Maine State Police Major Crimes Unit, to ask him that question myself. Lieutenant Love, thank you for making time to speak with me and my listeners about this. It's a case we've been following for a while, and it's certainly encouraging when a three and a half decades old case finally gets an arrest. What can you tell me about the information that finally led to Gerald Goodale's indictment for the murder of Janet Brochu? I can't get into the specifics of the investigation, but what I can tell you is that each one of these cold cases uh, was evaluated by the Unsolved Homicide Unit. Um, and, and we look back at the initial investigation and those detectives that work on that case. Uh, and we are in amazement. Every case we look at, the, the extensive efforts that took place uh, back in the day, uh, and certainly in this case, uh, that took place. So the work started you know, 34 years ago with an extensive investigation. And then over the years, that case has been worked on, the, the Janet Boshu case has been worked on uh, by different primary detectives that work within the major crimes units. Uh, and then in 2015, the 126th legislature uh, found funding for the unsolved homicide unit. Uh, which put an emphasis and, and provided more resources to the state police to work on these cases. Uh, and that's when we reviewed the Janet Brochu case uh, in the Unsolved Homicide Unit, along with the primary detective within the Major Crimes Unit, started working on that case and, and created action items um, and then started doing some interviews, which ultimately led to the grand jury indictment. With Gerald Goodell being on the case radar, 
for so long, even being mentioned in media reports as early as 1988 when Janet's body was discovered. Why did it take 34 years to finally lock down that arrest? That's a, a very fair question and a good question. Um, we, it's a huge responsibility to be charged with investigating these cases, and we take that uh, very seriously. And not everybody can, can do these cases. Uh, there's only three agencies in the state that, uh, by statute, is allowed to investigate these cases. Uh, so we put our, all of our efforts into these unsolved cases, uh, and the active homicide investigations, and we only have one shot at getting it right. So we have to spend an enormous amount of time to run out one individual detail to ensure that we have it accurate. Uh, and sometimes it will take us a month, a year, two years to run that, that detail out to get it right and then we compile all the information and present it to the attorney general's office in Maine. And only when that investigation is complete and all of those loose ends are, are looked at, uh, will they say, yes, we can now move forward uh, with a charge. So that takes a long time. And, and sometimes it's, you know, it's frustrating for us. It's frustrating for the families. Um, we understand that, but, we have to get it right if, if we want to continue to maintain this responsibility uh, that the citizens of Maine entrust us with. I appreciate the context, and I understand the responsibility of investigators to get it right the first time to ensure the best chance of justice for the victim. That said, I'm curious what evidence was uncovered that made the arrest possible this year in 2021 and not earlier in the investigation. This case is, is, is in the court process now, and, and uh, I'll allow that information to come out uh, in the court process. So the indictment against Gerald Goodale was actually ready seven months before the grand jury took it up in May of 2021. Delays caused by the coronavirus pandemic were to blame for the holdup. Janet's mother passed away in 2015, and her father just this year, in January 2021. Were you or any of the detectives working on Janet's case able to speak to her father and give him any indication that justice was approaching for his daughter? At the time, we were not able to tell him. Lieutenant Love, Knowing that this case is one step closer to conclusion and justice for Janet Brochu, how does that feel for you? There is no better feeling as a, as a detective um, than, than bringing closure on a complete mystery, um, one that's lasted now for 34 years. Um, a number of detectives have worked on this investigation, uh, the family, has always asked questions, uh, and now we're hoping to bring some of these answers and present it to a judge or a jury and let them evaluate it and make a determination on whether or not um, someone is guilty or not guilty. And, and that is 
the culmination of, of our efforts. And it's, it's, a, it's a very rewarding feeling, um, but we're, you know, we still have a court process to go through, so we're, we're still kind of uh, anxiously awaiting that process to run its course. I can share in that anxious feeling, and I remember when the news about the indictment broke and so many Dark Down East listeners were sending it to me, asking if I'd seen it, asking if I knew anything. For you in law enforcement and for your detectives, with the advancements in the way people are communicating online and spreading information through social media and independent podcasts like mine, Do you think that's helpful or hurtful to your mission to solve these cold cases? I think as long as it's done correctly and the information surrounding the investigation is gathered in a way that it's the reporter or someone such as yourself is is getting the factual information either from uh, the court or from newspapers or from family members, and then that information is conveyed through that social media platform, that's it's very helpful to us as investigators to get that information out to the public and maybe catch that one person who has that small little piece of information that will help fill in you know, a piece of the puzzle that we've been looking for for 20 years. So as, as long as it's done correctly, it's very helpful. When, it, when things go wrong for us is when misinformation is put out or it's over-exaggerated or uh, I call it confabulation. If there's you know, multiple stories that turn into just one story and then that's presented as the truth, that's when it, it starts to generate leads and, and misinformation that detectives have to follow up on, which kind of is a rabbit hole that we can put an enormous amount of resources, time and effort into, and it, it takes us nowhere because that information wasn't reported accurately. Finally, I think this break in Janet Brochu's case has been a sign of hope for other families awaiting answers for their own loved ones. What do you have to say to those people still waiting? We've had several successes in the past, and we will have more. Uh, The Unsolved Homicide Unit's motto is Semper Memento, which is always remember. Uh, And we do. And and, uh, this unit, in combination with the the detectives from the Major Crimes Unit, uh, we will continue to work these cases um, with the... the the same hard work and passion that the original investigators had uh, and we're hoping to bring closure uh, for these families and and hold these individuals accountable that um, have hurt their loved one. Lieutenant Love, thank you for your time. And thank you. When thinking about these two cases, the lives of Geraldine Finn and Janet Brochu, I consider what could have happened if Geraldine was never found, if Goodale was never arrested, if he was never convicted and sentenced to life behind bars. Would he have done this to another woman, leaving another Waterville bar unsuspecting of the man offering her a ride home? Maybe. 
he could have. I think in a way, the conclusion to Geraldine's case was more than justice. I think Geraldine saved lives. Her killer was off the streets. He couldn't hurt anyone else. Now, it's time to continue the pursuit of justice for Janet. The court process is underway, and Lieutenant Love anticipates motions from the defense before it proceeds to trial, such as a motion to suppress evidence. Evidence that we still don't know about, but we will. When that phase is complete, Gerald Goodale will stand trial for the murder of Janet Brochu. And I will be following it for you, right here on Dark Down East. Thank you for listening to Dark Down East. All sources for this case, including reporting by Bruce Hertz for the Bangor Daily News and court documents, are listed in the show notes at darkdowneast.com so you can dig into the research and learn more. Following and rating Dark Down East is the best way to support this show, and it's the best way to ensure that you never miss an episode of Maine and New England true crime stories. Wherever you listen, tap follow, and if you're on Apple Podcasts, go ahead and tap the stars to rate the show. If you have a personal connection to a case I should cover, I'd love to hear from you at hello at darkdowneast.com. Follow along with the show at darkdowneast.com and on Instagram and Facebook at darkdowneast. Thank you for supporting this show and allowing me to do what I do. I'm honored to use this platform for the families and friends who have lost their loved ones and for those who are still searching for answers in cold missing persons and murder cases. I'm not about to let those names or their stories get lost with time. I'm Kylie Lowe, and this is Dark Down East. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.